Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, as I take you on a personal guided tour of the wild and crazy world of Japanese giant monsters, also known as Dai Kaiju. I hope you enjoyed our last episode, which was the special Gaiden episode, with Mr. Lomax and I discussing Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim. We've got a very good episode for you today with uh, coverage of episodes 3 and 4 of the original Subaraya show Ultraman. Uh, Mr. Lomax was going to be with us. He has developed some technical problems, so I'm going to do the show solo today. Hope that's alright with you guys. Uh, but we got a very good episode planned today. We're going to be taking a look not only at Ultraman, we're going to be looking at um, issue 4 of Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors, which has been a lot of fun to read. And we're getting a lot of good feedback on that. And we're also going to have your emails to close out the show. So a uh, full episode here today on the Earth Destruction Directive. So we're going to take a quick break, play somebody's promo, and get right back into it. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. As I said at the top of the show, we're going to be taking a look today at two more episodes of the classic tokusatsu show Ultraman. Ultraman, of course, the first of the Kyodai heroes, or giant heroes, from Japanese science fiction, and probably the most well-known and certainly the most successful. Um, we talked about this a lot on the first episode, but uh, just real quick, of course, Ultraman is the second Ultra series following Ultra Q. It debuted in the summer of 1966, ran for 39 episodes, and was immediately followed up with the series Ultra 7, and then numerous sequels and follow-ups over the years, right up till present day, where we have the most recent Ultra hero, Ultraman Ginga, who is currently appearing in the show, uh, New Ultraman Retsuden. But that is something for another episode. Here today we're going to be taking a look at two very early episodes. And up first is episode three, Charge Forth Science Patrol, which aired originally on July 31st, 1966, on the Tokyo Broadcast System, and is subtitled Naranga Appears. Fuji and Hoshino investigate a strange bellowing sound coming from inside an old well near Mount Iwami, which began after the construction of a nearby power plant. Going down inside the well, they discover a feudal-era tunnel used by nobles to, as an escape route to the sea in case of invasion. Along with the gigantic eye of a monster, the source of the unusual sound is its roar. 
Emerging from the earth, forcing Fuji and Hoshino to use the tunnels to swim to safety, the monster is heard, but only briefly seen, as it smashes its way through the power plant, leveling it to the ground. The rest of the science patrol predict that the monster will attack another power plant, and begin to make preparations for a counterattack. Hoshino relates the legend of the monster Naranga, who was defeated and imprisoned centuries earlier by the master samurai Ichiman Murai. The electrical energy from the power plant is what revived Naranga in the modern day, and he's hungry for more. Setting up an ambush at the nearest power plant, the science patrol is forced to wait. When Naranga arrives, Hoshino steals Arashi's spider shot and confronts the transparent monster himself. He's able to get a few shots in, forcing Naranga to reveal himself and blasting out one of his eyes. But before the enraged monster can return fire on the boy, Hayata arrives. He sends Hoshina back to the rest of the patrol and changes to Ultraman. The battle is brutal, but in the end, Ultraman presses and throws Naranga to the ground, finishing him off with the specium beam. The threat defeated, the science patrol praises Hoshino's bravery, but questions his brains for his actions. Um, Naranga, the first Earth monster that we actually see in the show, which is interesting. Be God, with Ultraman being an alien, it makes sense that he would fight space monsters and other aliens. And in the first three episodes, we see him fight a space monster in Bemular, an alien in Bolton, and now an Earth monster in Naranga. This trend would continue throughout all the Ultra shows of these different types of monsters and enemies that Ultraman would have to face. Naranga is an interesting looking monster, the first of numerous times that uh, the Baragon suit from the Godzilla series would be borrowed by the Ultra series and have a new head put on it and get pressed into use. I think they liked the Baragon suit because it could, it could do double duty. It could work as either a quadruped or a biped. Here Naranga spends a lot of his time as a quadruped except when fighting Ultraman, and then he stands up on his hind legs. His head's pretty neat, got a big, uh, uh, big, big jaw like a lot of quadruped monsters do. He also has a pair of horns that when he gets ready to fire his beam, rotate forward and touch and then light up before he shoots his, uh, his beam, which is what he was about to fry Hoshino with when Hayata makes his save. Right at the beginning, when Fuji and Hoshino are investigating the strange sounds, we get a very interesting dichotomy between uh, the tunnel and the fortress on Mount Umari versus the power plant that was built there. It's very much a very common thing we see in a lot of, you know, uh, Showa-era tokusatsus, especially as we get closer to the 70s, this being 1966, we're, we're getting there, where it's a contrast between the old ways and the new ways. You know, Japan was a country that modernized very rapidly after World War II, uh, but still had a lot of the traditional and very historical elements to it, and often they were side by side, like we see here. So it's something that was not uncommon in this time in Japan, and it's nice to see that reflected in the show. Also, just neat visual that we get to see the fortress and then this power plant, so we get the old and the new. When Naranga emerges from the Earth, initially he is translucent. We can see a vague sort of outline through a double exposure. Bert I. Gordon would be very proud of how this is done as he stomps around, but the overall effect is that the power plant is being destroyed by a non-existent monster. By this I mean the special effects are designed that it's simply being collapsed or tipped over and then Naranga is superimposed over it and as I said a double exposure. Very neat, you know, very atypical sort of thing for 
the Ultra series, which kind of had its bread and butter in traditional suitmation monster stomping around. So very nicely done. It's not a long sequence. And the first time you watch it, you think something's wrong, that maybe the double exposure didn't work right, but it did exactly what it was supposed to do. One of the weaknesses of double exposure to do a gigantic monster, whether it's the Amazing Colossal Man, or Empire of the Ants, or what have you, is that a lot of times, if the exposures aren't the same, the the uh, element that is the effect element can look a little translucent. Here that works very nicely, because it's the uh, the plot point that we're going for. Also, Naranga sucking up the electricity. Gets back to what I was saying earlier. This is an earth monster, an ancient beast, and he attacks something modern and drinks it up, and it makes it more powerful. A theme that would, again, get revisited in other tokusatsus, and including later on in the Ultra series, I really like it, because it shows the power of the the ancient monster, the power of the old ways, if you will. This is a, a theme that gets explored a lot in, I think, a lot of different science fiction, that the old ways were powerful, and they kind of went by the wayside, but it's not that they're no longer powerful, that's people... We worship at science instead of at... Uh, it's not magic so much in this case as it is giant monsters, but they were their own special brand of magic. The samurai legend that Hoshino relates, I really like this bit as well. It's going it to ties it all together again with the old versus the new, and it also gives a, a pretty reasonable explanation. I mean, a reasonable explanation on a show involving you know skyscraper-sized uh, monsters fighting skyscraper-sized heroes. Uh, about why the monster suddenly showed up. Nine times out of ten on an Ultra show, monsters just show up with little to no explanation given. Here's at least some thought was given to it, that it was this ancient monster that was defeated, and then building this power plant is what is what brought him back to life. It also gives Naranga a nice bit of uh, motivation for wanting to go out after other sources of energy, not just, oh, he's going to go here because this is what we wrote in the script. Hoshino is kind of a pain in the butt a lot. <laughs> it's, a, it's a recurring theme, and we talked about this on the first two episodes as well. You know, he, he kind of barges into the science patrol, he goes off half-cocked, he does things, gets himself into trouble, and Fuji's got to bail him out. And, and he, he really he doesn't come off very well in the first half of this episode. In the second half, he kind of redeems himself. He's very brave. You know, he takes a Rashi spider shot, and he goes and faces down Naranga by himself. You know, there, there's that old saying, there's a fine line between, you know, courageous and stupid. And I think he crosses that line, but he, you know, he's a kid. He, he, Oshino does okay. He's not as annoying as other little kids that were forced into tokusatsu production somewhere around this time. Kenny from Gamera kind of takes the cake on that one. And uh, Sean Engel, he knows what I'm talking about with, with Kenny. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's hard to say because sometimes he's just really a pain, but sometimes he's all right. And this episode's kind of in the middle. Um, you know, Arashi actually calls him a troublemaker, which I think is fantastic. I absolutely love that. And he calls him right out. And, <laughs> and then Arashi's certainly not happy when he finds out Hoshino has stolen his spider shot. We all know how much Arashi loves his spider shot. The Science Patrol in general, other than Fuji, doesn't get a whole lot of time on screen for characterization in this episode. There's a lot of story here. And mostly this is Hoshino's episode which is odd uh, in a lot of ways. This early on in the show, we're getting a kid-centric episode. We're still establishing the characters. You know, maybe it was a, an idea from 
Subaraya and crew to give the kids an in right away. You know, the hey, we're going to focus on this kid character in addition to the giant superhero and the monster. So that's possible. At the second power plant, we get a really great series of shots, uh, effect shots, of the full-on JSDF arsenal. We get tanks, we get missile trucks, jeeps, APCs, um, mechanized guns, the whole nine. If there was one thing that Subaraya and his crew could do, it was a big effect shot of mustering up the conventional weapons to go fight the monster ineffectively. We saw this all the time in the early Godzilla films of this era. King Kong vs. Godzilla has a lot of great military stuff in it, uh, and then again in Mothra vs. Godzilla, and then even in you know, uh, Gator the Three-Headed Monster, we saw this as well. And this this is a theme, of course. It's a trope of the genre at this point. You march out the conventional weapons so the monster can smash them, and that's pretty much what happens here because they really can't affect Naranga all that much. Naranga's kind of a, a tough cookie of the early monsters here. But still, good to see it the first time we see the full arsenal of the JSDF brought to bear, which makes sense, again, this being an Earth monster. Space monsters and aliens, a little bit different in the context of the Ultra series. <laughs> I think Naranga must have had a little bit of influence, I think, on somebody like Guillermo del Toro, because at one point in his attack on the second power plant, he picks up a freighter and throws it, and all I could think of was, after the fact, was Gypsy Danger picking up the uh, freighter ship and using it as a baseball bat. And you gotta love when a monster just picks up a, uh, a prop like that and just heaves it. It's great. I absolutely love it. Yeah, there's, there's something to be said about making your monsters in the right scale so they can interact with objects like that. Naranga just grabbing it and heave hoeing it. Gotta love it. Uh, the power plant's uh, attack has a really kind of a long just effect sequence of Naranga attacking it before Hoshino attacks him back. And these are just really well done. I tell you, for a TV show, the effects on this are... They're not quite as good as we saw in the Godzilla series, but they're certainly on par with what Dai was doing in the Gamera series, and when you consider the budget, that's probably an apt comparison. But Tsuburaya's suits were always better than Dai's suits, so the, the, and they had a better grasp of model making in a lot of ways, too. I mean, there's some great explosions. Power plants and refineries. Power plants and refineries always explode really well, and this is no exception. There's a lot of great reactors exploding and buildings uh, catching fire and all that. And Naranga himself gets a lot of shots of him just wading through the plant. It's really well done sequence. Uh, they would build on this and build on this as this series progresses to the point that uh, about halfway through the series we get a sequence which is as far as I'm concerned feature film quality but we'll get to that in a much later episode. Um, then we get the first real instance of monster gore in Ultraman as Hoshino blasts out Naranga's eye with the spider shot. It's not really all that gruesome when you get down to it, but still, that's a pretty nasty thing to see on TV. Admittedly, it's the monster that's being hurt, and it's the kid doing the hurting, but man, in the eyes. I've, I've got a thing about the eyes. Too many um, Lucio Fulci horror movies, probably. I'm a little sensitive about things near my eyes. Uh, I, I was a terror having to go to the optometrist as a kid. But when he shoots out the eye, that, that's kind of harsh. And then you can see Naranga is pissed off because he brings his horns up and he's just going to blast Ashino and Hayata just makes the save. Um, the, uh, 
we do we of course get a color timer explanation during the fight which is uh, very nice because uh, if you missed the first couple of episodes you might not know that if the color timer on Ultraman's chest ever goes out completely Ultraman may never rise again the fight itself is a back-and-forth affair. Ultraman's agility is put to good use. There's a couple of times where Naranga lunges at him, and Ultraman simply sidesteps out of the way and lets Naranga crash into a building and hurt himself. Not so great for the owners of the power plant with the collateral damage, but, you know, them's the breaks when you get attacked by an ancient Earth monster because you were stupid enough to build a power plant near his tomb. At one point, Ultraman breaks off Naranga's horns, and it's youch. This poor guy, he already had his eye shot out by a kid, and now Ultraman breaks off his horns, which not only are his defensive uh, weapons, but also his ranged weapon in there. Just Achi Mama. And then to finish it off, Ultraman uses one of his um, probably best-known combinations, which is the Gorilla Press over the head, throwing him down to the ground, and then hitting him while prone with the Specium Beam. It, it's a, you know, it just works. It just works because it shows off uh, Ultraman's strength and his finisher at the same time. So, Overall, I, I like this episode. Naranga is a cool monster. There would be cooler monsters later, so that's why I think a lot of times people forget about Naranga. It doesn't help that his Bandai vinyl is really kind of eh, because he's standing quad, he's standing bipedal, but like hunched over. If he had been quadrupedal, I would have bought this vinyl already. It's really nice. They could do an ultra act out of him. I think that would be a really smart move on Bandai's part because if you get strong enough joints in the ankles, you could and and a, a nice swivel on the neck, you could make him go from quadrupedal to bipedal. I think that'd be a great selling point. All of the Ultra Monsters that we've gotten in Ultra Act have all been uh, bipedal. We've gotten Red King, Ella King, Gamora, Balton, uh, Magma, you know, monsters like that, which are bipedals. I'd love to see a, a quadrupedal, but that's neither here nor there. We'll do a, an Ultra Act episode another time. Again, real good episode. Uh, I, I like this one. A lot of action, a lot of monsters. Even Hoshino is, acquits himself nicely, so overall, pretty good episode. Let's see. Up next is episode number four, Five Seconds Before the Explosion, which aired on August the 7th, 1966, also on Tokyo Broadcast System, and is subtitled The Humanoid Sea Monster Ragon Appears. A rocket is sent to the planet Jupiter holding six nuclear bombs for some reason. The rocket develops a fault and crashes back to Earth, landing in the Pacific Ocean. One of the bombs explodes underwater, causing a disaster at sea, flooding a coastal village. Four other bombs are recovered, leaving one bomb unaccounted for. While the science patrol scours the sea floor trying to locate the missing bomb, Fuji is granted a weekend vacation, which she spends at the seaside Mamiyama Hotel along with Hoshino and picking up the young door of the hotel owner, Michigo, along the way. As the science patrol search continues, a freight tanker spots a fast-moving white wake, which turns out to be the herald of the monster Ragon, now a giant. Ragon attacks the ship and brutally sinks it. Even more worrisome, the sixth bomb is stuck on Ragon's shoulder. The science patrol shifts to tracking Ragon, but it is Fuji who finds him when the white wake arrives at her resort. Fleeing, Fuji and Hoshino manage to lure Ragon out into the forest away from the resort. Science Patrol arrives and tries to broadcast music to calm Ragon down, as the monster was attracted to music the first time he appeared. This Ragon 
mutated by the radiation of the one exploded bomb, will have none of it and goes even more wild. With no other options left, Hayata changes into Ultraman and engages Ragon, making a diving leap to catch the dropped atomic bomb before it can impact and detonate. The two giants grapple back and forth until Ultraman blasts the plone Ragon with his specium beam and knocks him off a cliff back into the sea. Grabbing the bomb, Ultraman flies into space, where the explosion is harmless. Hoshino worries that Ultraman died in the blast, but Hayata assures him that Ultraman must be fine, because Ultraman always wins, right? Another real good episode here. Ragon is another Earth monster, humanoid this time, and his name is a direct play on Lagoon. He looks a lot like the creature from the Black Lagoon. And um, Ragon actually first appeared in an episode of Ultra Q as a human-sized monster, a kaijin, if you will. And they directly reference that when they play the music to Lorem, the original Ragon was... I don't want to say a, a a good monster, but he was more of just kind of a primitive, and he could be uh, manipulated by playing music, and they lured him around. This Ragon, he's a little more angry and a little more aggressive after being exposed to the radiation, and so he is not happy about that. I I love these episodes that have the nuclear threat. You know, um, anytime that nuclear weapons were brought up in the 60s, obviously it was a bad thing, and this comes up in... Godzilla films fairly often, and so it also comes up every now and again in Ultraman. You know, we're in 1966, we're just 20 years removed from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, the, the impact of the nuclear bombs being dropped on Japan was still being felt very much by people who were now adults that were kids when that happened. So it, it's something that was always a, a, a topic that needed to be addressed, especially given the origins of Daikaiju, given the fact that Godzilla. His origin was based around the nuclear bomb. The nuclear weapons always seem to come up in tokusatsu films and TV shows from the Showa period, and they rightly should. I mean, we were in the middle of the Cold War, so it's good to address it. It's done in an interesting way here because the bombs are being brought to Jupiter for experimentation purposes. I'm not sure what they're going to do. You can't terraform a gas giant, so I don't know what they're going to do, but it's not a military application for the bombs. So I thought that was pretty novel, especially, again, in 66. When the bomb goes, the one bomb goes off undersea, we get a flood, and floods are tough to do in, in tokusatsu because, as my friend Duncan once said to me, water doesn't scale. Now, Tsuburaya's crew is the best at doing it. The The best flood footage I think I've ever seen in a film done with practical effects was actually not in a film. It was in the first episode of Ultraman Leo, which was um, about 10 years after this aired, which just looks absolutely amazing. This, this is very similar to uh, the scenes of flooding from the Mysterians or from King Kong vs. Godzilla at the end. So it, it looks good. It, it's always... I always pay attention to scenes of flood in tokusatsu just because they are so difficult to do. Uh, Ragon, when he shows up, first off, if you've seen Ultra Q and now you remember Ragon being a humanoid, now he's a giant. So that alone is a pretty big twist. The first, obviously, of the Ultra Q monsters to reappear and directly tying Ultraman to Ultra Q because there, there was a little bit of a question as to whether they were related. But this ties it conclusively, which is very important because Ultra Q will become more important as the series goes on with some monsters returning. And especially when we get into the much, much later show Ultra Galaxy, 
or excuse me, this is for Shag, Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy, monsters from Ultra Q become much more important. But it's good to see Ragon here. Now, when Ragon shows up, he does his impression of Gyra from War of the Gargantuas. He goes right after this boat, and he sinks it. I mean, it is absolutely brutal. That's the only word I can use. He sinks this boat, and you can see the buoyancy that's built into the model of the ship is is really good, because you can see it's not easy for him to do. It's not just a toy boat that he's pushing under the water. This thing has a lot of mass, and it's it wants to stay up, but the way that he just absolutely slams this thing under the water and sinks it, there is no way anybody got off this boat. So, I mean, this and this is a big merchant vessel there's a lot of men on that ship and they all went down that is harsh that is a very harsh scene especially again considering it's a japanese show and how many japanese men made their living on the sea either as fishermen or merchant marine men or sailors or what have you so but in and, and as i said he does his gyra impression it's almost like a dry run for how they would do it in War of the Gargantuas. I mean, it's very similar. Obviously, there's no giant octopus, but the way that he takes it down, the way it's shot, uh, it's not quite as dark because it takes place earlier in the day than the scene in War of the Gargantuas, but it's very similar. It's the first thing I thought, especially considering they're both green. So, there you go. Uh, Fuji goes on her vacation, so we get some really nice uh, footage of a very, very swanky 1960s marina resort, complete with a badminton court and a pool and a nice restaurant, and it's just very charming. I love seeing this kind of stuff in... in I said this back in the Ghidorah episode, that I love seeing things like this that are obviously shot on location, because it gives us a little slice of life. I love this in both domestic films and international films just because you know i mean i was born in 1980 i don't know what things were like back then but things that are shot on location like this gives you a little glimpse of it, it adds a lot of color and it's really nice also interesting you would think that with fuji going to this marina resort that we might get a little fan service you know her in a bathing suit or something nope nope not none of that she wears her uniform on vacation that fuji is one dedicated science patrol officer uh, <laughs> that she brings a Shino with her is a little suspect. That they then get saddled with the resort owner's daughter, Michigo, who is just kind of a little brat, who has a huge appetite, is, is just comedy gold. It's just very silly. Uh, it doesn't really amount to much, but it's some good... I guess you needed some counter, some comic relief to counterbalance the fact that Ragon just sunk a ship with how many hundreds of men on it with none of them escaping. So let's laugh at this girl eating a, a big plate of spaghetti and sandwiches and ice cream. <laughs> there, There is some much better characterization in this episode because Fuji goes on vacation, Ide gets stuck doing her job. Now this being the 60s, that also includes getting the coffee for Captain Morai. <laughs> and, uh, oh my gosh, it's really funny to seeing Ide's bug-eye reactions to the orders that the captain gives him. And when he brings him the coffee, it turns out he's put salt in it instead of sugar. It's like, ooh, rookie mistake, Ide, rookie mistake. Guys smart enough to build all the weapons and ships that the Science Patrol uses can't make coffee, you know. I guess it's just applied knowledge kind of thing. Uh, when Ragon appears, he's recognized, and again, this is, gets back to what I said earlier about tying Ultraman to Ultra Q definitively. It's not just that they're reusing the suit, it's reusing the suit, but it's clearly seen as, hey, that's Ragon, you know. I really 
thought that was nice and it gives a nice sense of continuity Japanese shows especially shows in a series take different approaches to continuity the Super Sentai for instance they will be completely divorced from each other year to year except when they do the crossover movie and then they'll interact but it's not like if you know the team is in trouble they can say hey wait a minute let's call last year's team uh, you know, on just a random episode. But Ultraman always had a little bit more tighter continuity. I think the nature of the uh, the ongoing narrative of the series allowed for that. And, you know, bringing back monsters is a time-honored tradition in tokusatsu, so I'm all for it. Uh, we get our first radioactive mutation of the uh, of all on, in the series, which is, again, another trope of the daikaiju genre. And, and again, a good way, again, to reuse the suit, but make it different. You know, if you, there's no real difference in a humanoid suit versus a giant suit, except for the set that they're on. So making Ragon go giant uh, due to the atomic radiation not only fits with the plot that they're doing, because not only is he giant, he's also now aggressive and hostile, but it also allows him to get more mileage out of a suit that was existing, and you get a humanoid, another humanoid fighting with Ultraman, not just wrestling with a big, a big kaiju. Uh, we see again in this episode, as we did in the last one, Hoshino's bravery. When they were, Fuji and Hoshino have lured Ragon away from the resort, you know, they're, they're, they want to get him as far away from a populated area as possible in case the bomb that stuck to him blows up. So Hoshino keeps running out in the field, waving his hands, yelling at Ragon to lure him closer and closer and closer and farther and farther away from any other people. And and he's all out by himself. At that one point, he's right at the edge of a cliff, and he's cornered. And, and again, Hoshino is a uh, audience identification character, a kid character that gets put in just so the audience has somebody to identify with. But he, he has his moments where he shines, and this is one of them, like it was in the last episode, where we see his bravery and not just him being a troublemaker is where the character shines and i and i like that he's he's very and 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 the thing is he knows when he's in trouble because he hits that cliff and he looks down and he's like ah okay (laughs) and it's like you know ultraman um anytime you want to show up here pal so um during the fight with ragon and ultraman the bomb is finally jostled loose and is falling and we had been told that if the bomb received a major shock that it would light up and then explode in like 30 seconds so ultraman does a full out full extension ken griffey jr style diving catch to catch the atomic bomb and not let it hit the ground i absolutely love it that he was able to do that in the full suit is extremely impressive and it just looks really nice and there's some actual really good tension because you know all the science patrol is there and there's absolutely nothing they can do if this bomb goes off they're they're in trouble they got nothing they can do so and they can't get close enough to even work on it or try and disarm it because of the fight between ultraman and ragon so really good use of not just the fact that it's a giant monster fight but using other elements of the plot to heighten the dramatic tension this is the first real true humanoid opponent that we see ultraman fight um, hand-to-hand. Uh, Bolton was a humanoid, but that fight was mostly in the air, and it wasn't quite the same here. And Bemular was vaguely humanoid, but those tiny little arms, he's not going to be grappling. Here, Ragon has full range of motion. He's, like I said, he looks a lot like the creature from the Black Lagoon, so he's 
a full humanoid shape. So it gives the opportunity for different types of um, combat moves being seen by each. And you know, Ultraman uses his judo and his throws, but Ragon's more of just a wild, primitive fighter. You know, he throws uh, throws punches and kicks and things like that. It's really a good fight. I will say that the the fights start out pretty decent. They're not as involved or complex as they would get, but they never were really poor on this show. Generally speaking, the fights are usually quite good. You know, one or two here might be of lesser quality, but generally speaking, the fights were well choreographed and well put together. You know, when you only need to choreograph a couple of minutes, you can do that. You know, it's harder to do that as you get longer and longer. Uh, (laughs) At one point in the fight, uh, Ultraman hits Ragon with a Specium beam in the face and it's like youch just youch i don't know that it hurts more i just assume it did since he got hit in the face with it and uh ragon falls back off the cliff into the sea we don't actually see him dying we see his body falling down it's obviously just the empty suit being thrown off a cliff into the effects tank which I always have a great... uh, I love when you see dummies and empty suits being thrown down things because they just twist and contort. It looks awesome. I absolutely love it. But he falls back into the sea, but we don't see him get killed, so does Ragon survive? It's really unclear. Um, You know, basically, at this point in the story, if if Ragon is beaten back and sent packing, would he go back to being peaceful, or would he continue to be aggressive? We don't see Ragon again in this series, so it's uh, apparently either he died or he went back to being calm. I like to think that he just simply went back and survived. You know, Ultraman doesn't take pleasure in killing monsters. It's a have-to sort of situation. So that was a good ending. Then, of course, Ultraman grabs the bomb and flies off into outer space, where, it, of course, as every good science fiction fan knows, like nuclear explosions in space have no effect on anything whatsoever. Yeah. But he's Ultraman, he can take it. The coda to the episode with Hoshino wondering if Ultraman died is kind of an interesting bit of foreshadowing. At this point, you know, we have no reason to believe that Ultraman is anything but an invincible superhero. Yeah, we have the color timer, which says that if it ever goes out, completely out, he will never rise again, which we don't get a color timer reminder in this episode. I guess they figured we knew it at this point. The color timer reminder will still appear a few times, I'm pretty sure, but it comes and goes. It's not a. It's not in every episode anymore. But questioning whether or not Ultraman would die from a nuclear explosion, Hayata's very sort of casual response to it, I think was a very much foreshadowing into what would come later. Yes, Ultraman defeats every foe that he fights. I mean, that's the standard of what would become the tropes of the Kyodai hero genre. But he's not immortal. He's not invincible. His life is in danger every single time he goes out there. He can't last forever in Earth atmosphere. So I think Hoshino asking that question, even if it's just at the time we don't think much of it, I think it plants the seeds in your mind that, yeah, Ultraman does have weaknesses. He can be defeated. He could die defending the Earth. So it's just something to think about. It'll come back around, obviously, at the end of the series, and that shows up later in other Ultra shows as well. But I liked it. It shows that they were at least thinking. They could have just had, you know, the sort of funny music Star Trek ending to pretty much any episode in this series, and it'd be all right. But going a little bit serious, I applaud that. Another good episode. Again, Ragon is a very cool monster. Ragon just reappeared on Ultraman Ginga, looking 
um, not that much different. I mean, updated a little bit, new suit, but his uh, basic look has not changed since 1966. And really none of the Ultra Monsters have changed too much. Some of them have gotten refinements, I'd say, more than changing. But, but Ragon's just such a classic design, like I said, being the Japanese version of the creature from the Black Lagoon, that he uh, translates perfectly. He actually just got a new uh, toy in the form of what are called the Ultra Kaiju 500 series. These are smaller vinyls. They're about an inch shorter. So they're about, mm, I'd say about five inches tall. And they said they're vinyls. They cost 500 yen a piece, hence the name. And they are the Spark Dolls from Ultraman Ginga, which I will talk about a little bit on another episode. I don't want to get into it too much. Uh, right now, just because we've got a lot of Ultra already on this episode. But he just got a new toy. Ragon still remains popular to this day. Uh, you know, he's just a, just a classic. Just a classic. Nothing fancy, nothing flashy, just a big sea monster who looks like the creature from the Black Lagoon, who I'm a big fan of anyway. So, really good episode. Definitely worth watching. All of the original Ultraman is available for free in dubbed form on Hulu.com. Um, you don't need Hulu Plus unless uh, to watch it unless you want to watch it on, on the television. I, I'm not sure how that works. I don't have Hulu Plus. I know that Ultraman is available for free on Hulu. And, of course, if you want, you can always go get the DVD for like 9 bucks on Amazon. Go to 2TrueFreaks.com click on our Amazon link, and then just buy it, and then you'll have them all on DVD to enjoy. So we are going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun. Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns. They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. We are back on Earth Destruction Directive, and it is time to return once again to the adventures of the invincible defenders of world freedom, the Shogun Warriors. We're taking a look at Marvel Comics Group Shogun Warriors number four, cover dated May 1979 for 40 cents. Our issue is entitled The Mech Monster and was written by Doug Mensch with artist Herb Trimpey, inker Dan Green, letterer Jim Novak, colorist Andy Yankus, editor Alan Milgram, Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. At the Shogun Sanctuary, while the Shogun Warriors recharge their silver batteries, their pilots, Richard Carson, Alongo Savage, and Genji Odashu, continue to study the specifications and abilities of their robot partners. Carson is impressed with Raideen's ability to track objects with his arrow missiles, and we learn that Dangard Ace can convert into a flying fortress dubbed Dreadnought Titan, and that Combatra is actually made up of five smaller vehicles who merge together to form one robot. Dr. Tambura arrives to review holographic recordings of their battle with Rockcore in order to improve their future performance, leading Savage to muse that the trio has learned that they have a whole lot more to learn. Meanwhile, at the Haunt of Evil, Lieutenant Magar continues in vain to convince Lord Maurikan of the superiority of sorcery over science. Maurikan tells him that the matter is settled and returns to the Techno Mage's lab for a demonstration of the hulking mech monster. 
Armed to the teeth, the mech monster can see in all directions with its sensors and attack multiple foes from different angles at once. Magar, spying from the catwalks, is disgusted with the metal monstrosity. After the demo, he uses a remote control to bring the mech monster to the boiling pit of the hot blood of the earth. Hot blood of the earth! Or he will smelt it down and use its power to make a living monster from his magic. Interrupted in this process by the untimely arrival of a pair of guards, the mech monster emerges from the bubbling pool, now no longer a simple construct, but a living mechanical being. The monster goes wild, blasting a path to the surface and flying off as Magar looks on helplessly. Back at the sanctuary, Genji requests a Kambatra for a night flight to become more familiar with the area as well as the Shogun's controls. Enjoying the view, the idyllic flight is soon interrupted when she spots parts of the nearby city ablaze. Swooping in, Kambatra is battered back by the powerful mech monster and his blasters. Genji calls into the sanctuary for reinforcements and then decides that she must use drastic measures to keep the monster occupied until her allies alive. And she splits Kambatra into the five smaller components, swarming around the vicious monster in a gamble to keep him from leveling the city. And we get a little box for the next issue. Next issue, The Further Education of Combatra Times 5, in a frantic battle to save the lives of thousands, plus a shockingly unexpected plot twist when Genji Odashu ventures into the lair of demons. Okay, yes, yeah, uh, we're, we're finally done with our uh, initial storyline where the shoguns were uh, being chosen and then paired up with their robots and then fighting uh, Rock Corps. And uh, so we get some downtime after that, but let's start right at the beginning here. The cover is uh, a pretty nice affair. It's got Combatra splitting into the um, three of his five components right on the cover, which is, is pretty interesting. And the perspective is very unique, because right in the foreground, we have Dr. Tambura, along with some other members of the Shogun Sanctuary, standing on a control platform. And then right behind him are the heads of Raiden and Dangard Ace, and then behind uh, those are the three pieces of Kombatra, which appear to be almost like blasting off or maybe being lifted up on a gantry. So it, it's it's got kind of a forced perspective looking up almost. Very nice use of text on the uh, on the cover. We get a little black arrow saying, it's Kombatra times five. Uh, very uh, old school type of definite Bronze Age sort of thing to have the arrow with the text and then menace of the mech monster on there as well. Uh, page one, we get our splash page, as is uh, commonplace of this era for Marvel Comics, with the three Shoguns standing on top of a platform being recharged with solar panels. Uh, notice, a little odd here, they're, they're standing on top of the sanctuary, and I understand the sanctuary is kind of in the middle of nowhere, but no one notices these three giant robots just standing around. I suppose this is the Marvel Universe and Stranger Things happen pretty much on a daily basis, so three giant robots that are just standing there is really not that impressive, but still, you'd think that somebody might notice them. Also interesting that they're solar powered, all this made me think of was, of course, Iron Man's armor. Uh, it, a couple of years after this, this is 1979, made a big deal out of being solar powered steel mesh. So solar power obviously makes for a very good use of an energy source in a comic book where science and you know certain matters of efficiency don't really need to enter into it, but I'm not going to get into that here. Uh, jumping over to page six, panels one through three, as the 
pilots are studying their shoguns, we get three panels uh, vertically down the page that show, essentially, they look almost like toy turnarounds of the three shogun warriors in their different modes. Up top we have riding, and it demonstrates how he goes from his regular robot mode to his firehawk flying mode, shows the intermediate steps. The middle panel shows Dangard A standing next to his dreadnought titan um, flying fortress form, and then the bottom panel shows all five forms of Combatra, and they're actually named, which is pretty neat. This is the first time we've seen a name for Dangard Ace's flight mode, and as well as the five component pieces of Combatra. Uh, they are Delta V1, which is the head, Skyskater 2, the chest slash thorax, Earth Mover 3, the lower torso abdomen, Turbo Streaker 4, the pelvis and legs, and Ground Rover 5, which is the feet combined together. Very much in line with how Combatlor V was designed, obviously, since I'm assuming this was taken probably from the DX Godaiken toy of Combatlor V, which became Combatra on the Shogun Warriors toy line. Very much appropriate. Similarly, Dangard Ace, of course, could transform into a big flying fortress, and we've talked about Rydeen's transformation before. Um, pages 7 through 10, we get a little bit of an aside here where we actually learn quite a bit about um, Longo Savage's background. He just kind of breaks into talking about his his job as an oceanographer and what he does and what he does during his downtime because, um, you know, Carson says, how about you, Savage? You've got a pretty far out job. And Savage says, I suppose, Carson, but it's strange, isn't it? It seems we've known each other forever, and yet we know so little about each other's real lives. That is, um, I, I like that they put a little bit of background for these characters. Mostly so far this series has been very action-heavy. We've gotten a little bit of character development for our pilots, but not much. It does kind of play like an info dump, but like I said, at least we get to learn something about somebody. I'd like to learn more about these folks and, you know, about Dr. Tambora and some of the other members of the Shogun Sanctuary, but that kind of stuff gets in the way of giant robots fighting monsters. So, Turning over to pages 10 and 11, Dr. Tambura gives his lesson while they're watching game film, essentially. It's like, uh, you know, what you do on Monday after a football game. You watch the game film, figure out what you did wrong. It's very clear from here that the pilots are still learning how to use their Shoguns, which makes sense. You know, a lot of times, especially in a Super Robot show or a Super Sentai show, the hero just knows inherently how to pilot and use all of the abilities of the giant robot. That never made sense, but it's something you have to kind of just accept. Otherwise, you'll get bogged down in them learning how to do it. The comic book format allows more time for this sort of, like I said, downtime type of story, and they are still learning. And, and you know, most heroes don't have the equivalent of a pit crew like the uh, pilots do here because they have all the members of the Shogun Sanctuary there to help them. So it's good to see them still learning how to do it. Tambora goes through with Carson the most efficient way that he could have deflected Rockcore's uh, fireball attack in the previous issue. And basically he says, well, just stand there and let the shields deal with it. Jumping over to page 15, Lord Mauricon heads to the Technomage's lab for a demonstration of the Mech Monster. Mech Monster still looks really kind of oddball with, because he's got, you know, um, Insectoid, insectoid legs and a long lizard's tail and a head like a bull and he's colored of course purple and yellow the true colors of fear as anyone knows 
this I really like the sound effects as he shows off his various weapons. He's got a uh, front-mounted weapon that fires with choom, which just looks like shoot him, real, you know. Which I thought I thought that's the sound blaster should make us shoot him, you know. And then his tail blaster. Uh, which he fires at some drones that come up behind him, goes spurs badoom. So I guess it's an electrical thing, and then badoom. I I, I miss these hand-lettered sound effects so much. I, I, the ones we get nowadays, the computer-added ones, they can do really nice things for making them consistent, but they don't have the character that these do. Page 17, panel 2. As Megar looks on while piloting the mech monster into the uh, hot blood of the earth, he still looks a lot like WWE superstar Kane. At some point, if he doesn't throw a tombstone pile driver on somebody, I'm going to be very disappointed. Uh, and then, of course, the hot blood of the earth. You, you cannot, I cannot overstate how much I enjoy seeing the hot blood of the earth in this story. It's just such a crazy element. There's this big bubbling pit of something, and they're calling it hot blood of the earth. Every time I, I say it, I think of Big Trouble in Little China. Burning over to page uh, 19, panels 4 and 5, um, the mech monster pulls himself up out of the pit of the hot blood of the earth, and now he looks really quite menacing, I'll say that. I don't know if perhaps the original design of the mech monster was purposefully a little silly, but now he looks really, really kind of monstrous. He's got golden skin with red horns hooked up like a bull, and then another straight pair of horns coming out the front of his eyes. His claws are red, he has gleaming red eyes, and the blasters on his shoulders are now red. He looks like a demon, essentially, a yellow and red demon and his features are kind of a mix between smooth organic flesh and jagged robotic parts. His wings, for instance, look like the wings of a bat, but then he still has what looks like a, a skirt of shoulder armor around, coming out of the uh, collarbone, running around his neck. It really looks a lot nicer than he did previously, and I'm glad that this is the design that they're going for. No longer looks dorky. Uh, turn on over now to pages 26 and 27. Combat, as uh, Combatra flies in and engages the mech monster, and the mech monster immediately turns uh, Odashu back with a choom again, a choom from his uh, front blaster, and actually slams Combatra right through a city block. It's actually a very nice shot, and some of the real nice collateral damage that you really need in a series like this. It's It's part of the Super, it's part of the Super Robot and Daikaiju genre, so you've really got to include it, and it's done very well. And immediately Genji knows that there's something different, that the mech monster is different from Rockor. Bigger, more awesome, more terrifying! <laughs> Gotta love that. So. Uh, but I will say this about Genji. She clearly is the most skilled pilot at this point. From the way that she reacts, when the mech monster knocks her down, she's thrown out of her seat, but she immediately jumps back up and starts... Uh, punching keys on the control board and returning fire. And in fact, in one panel, she's moving so fast, hitting all the keys, that they just show a Carmine Infantino-esque after-image trail of her fingers as she's hitting the different keys. With her background as a pilot, it makes sense that she would probably be the one most familiar with this type of controls, having a large control board in front of you with a number of different uh, switches and buttons that perform various functions. I'm not sure how it exactly translates, but it would make sense more so than an oceanographer who uses a bathysphere or a stunt driver that they would be 
you know, less skilled than Genji is in picking up how to pilot her Shogun. And finally, page 30, the split of Kombatra into the five components. This is a really great sequence of panels. It's a five-panel five grid on the page. In the first page, or excuse me, first page, the first panel, we see uh, Kombatra getting ready to split. Then the second panel is just a purple and yellow explosion, almost like a blast of color that we might see on an anime. And then the third panel shows uh, Kombatra splitting apart, and we see all five components. Actually, it's funny, they make a point of saying that Kombatra splits into six discrete components because the feet have to then merge together to make the five modules. And then panel four shows the um, the five components swooping all over in different directions. It looks like, again, something, not so much a manga, but you might see in an anime uh, as they get ready to attack. And then the final panel, panel five, they swarm all around the mech monster and are blasting him from different angles. And that looks like a tokusatsu. So it, it's it's kind of a neat progression of panels to show Kombatra. And again, this is before uh, the Super Sentai was really brought over to the United States. So the concept of a combining uh, super robot, they're doing it kind of backwards because they introduced a super robot first and had them break into five pieces instead of having five pieces that merge to form a super robot. I remember this also predates Voltron by a number of years as well, which would be kind of the first um, real example of the combining super robot that became popular in the U.S. So it, this was kind of a you know a big deal back then. This I imagine was hey, this is really cool, this is really neat. Now we kind of take it for granted, but I, it's great that they paid such strong attention to the uh, to the combatra's ability to break into five. Overall, not really a whole lot happens this issue. We get a lot of kind of, like I said, downtime in the form of both the Shogun Sanctuary and the bad guys in the Haunt of Evil. But it's it's sort of a transitional one. We're moving from the first storyline into some of the ongoing plot lines that are going to be resolved as we move forward. The introduction of Combatra's merging ability, plus the upgrade to the mech monster, I think lifted up out of what could have been just kind of a boring filler issue. Even a relatively light filler issue has two pretty major developments, one for an ongoing character and a second for a new threat. So that's pretty neat, and I, I appreciated that, uh, that we didn't just hold you know, hold pace with the mech monster and introduce the upgrade form at maybe the last page or something. They do it about halfway through, and then we do get to see it in action. Same with Combatra. You could have, you know, they do end it with the uh, five forms being split off, but we've already got to see Combatra in action before this, so it's not like we're being gypped. Also, the final panel of the five Combatra modules fighting the mech monster, that's a heck of a cliffhanger to set up for the next issue, especially since we know that uh, Genji has already put over the mech monster as being more powerful than Rock Corps, and the other two Shoguns are en route, so you know this is probably going to be a real knockdown, drag-out slobber knocker, to use a phrase, in the next issue. So that was a... that was and a good choice, and again, I, I like the issue. It's even even a le, you know a relatively lighter issue of this series has still been entertaining. As far as ads, we do get a uh, full page ad it says now stranger than ever enter the world of the awesome enchantment with the sorcerer supreme Doctor Strange, and uh, we've got two 
um, panels here. The left-hand one shows Doctor Strange metaphorically, I'm assuming, emerging from the mind of the Ancient One. And then the other side shows the Doctor with Clea as they're, um, and it looks like they're, I don't know, looking into a crystal ball or something like that. My friend Adam is a huge Doctor Strange fan. I like Doctor Strange. I've never gotten um, to read as much of his stuff as I would like, so I'm assuming this was, I guess, the later Strange Tales? I'm not sure about that. Still neat to see, especially in a book like Shogun Warriors, which, you know, they're they're arguing about, you know, sorcery versus science the entire time. And here's, you know, the master of the mystic arts showing up on the on the last page. Uh, we get some of the standard ads from the era. We get the uh, a nice maze from Fruit Stripe Gum, which, uh, luckily enough, the previous owner of this book was nice enough not to do. We do get a sale from Aurora AFX uh, racing cars, scale racing cars. Look what a penny can buy you for a limited time only while they last. Buy one magnet traction car at the regular price and get the second car for just one penny. These are the little slot cars that you would motorize and run on the slot car tracks. We used to have one of these near where I grew up. I never never went there. I was always more into die cast, like Hot Wheels, than I was uh, slot car racing. Although, you know, we did have one of those Tyco sets, which was neat. Uh, we get a half-page ad for the all-new Fantastic Four television cartoon series. And who's there, front and center? That's right, Herbie the Robot. <sighs> Sue looks real nice, though. And so does Ben. Uh, Reed, maybe looks all right, but, you know, Sue and Ben look great. Sue's got her longer hair. Very cute. And let's see. I think then the last one we got, we do get one of my favorites. We do get a Hostess Fruit Pie ad starring none other than the armored Avenger himself, Iron Man. It's Iron Man in Brains Over Brawn. Oh man, it's about a couple of guys driving a tank who are going to break down the walls at Stark Industries and uh, who knows what they can steal once they take it. They don't even know what they're going to steal. They just know they're going to take over the plant. Then Iron Man shows up and blasts them with his uh, repulsors. And then he he says, here, take your minds off me and your evil schemes. Have some Hostess fruit pies. Cherry for you, apple for you. And I will say this, at least Iron Man doesn't defeat them with the fruit pies like happened a lot in these sort of things. He uses his repulsors and then just, instead of binding them or tying them up, just throws them fruit pies and and i love this the last the last panel where the two goons are eating their fruit pies he goes we'll just stay here and enjoy these great tasting pies and we see shellhead stomping off and he goes and i'll get back to being tony stark it's like don't just announce that you still have a secret identity this is 1979 tony come on still always good to see the uh hostess fruit pies uh, ads ah god they need to bring those back somehow i know hostess kind of went away and they're back now i don't know anyway that's Shogun Warriors number four. I really enjoyed it. Looking forward to number five. Uh, I really want to see the Shoguns throw down with the mech monster now. It should be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to slot a promo in here, and then when we come back, we will close out the show. So come on back for the rest right after this. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to it. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that 
it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, it, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm-hmm. well, my pre- okay. It definitely built, built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. All right, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive, and now it is time for my favorite part of the show, which is your emails and feedback. And if you have feedback you would like to send to the show, you can always email it to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. And uh, I've got some other ways to get in touch with me, which will be in the outro to the show. So stick around if you want to get in touch or just send some email. Our first email comes from the illustrious fine-feathered fiend known as Jack Dower, and he says, Godzilla Half-Century War and Shogun Warriors 3. Jack writes, hey there, detective. I don't know about a detective. I'm rather good at solving puzzles, I suppose, but anyway. First, I am really looking forward to your take on Pacific Rim, the classic episodes of EDD hitting the podcast feed, and this was written before, right before the um, episode of um, the Earth Destruction Directive Gaiden with Pacific Rim uh, went up. So I'm gl- I hope you liked that one, uh, Jack, and uh, I think you actually have another email about that, so we'll get to that in a minute. Jack continues, I agree with you that IDW has done an amazing miniseries with the half-century war story. The writing was compelling, and the art really brought the story to life. Congratulations to Mr. Stoko. I admit that Matt Frank has been my favorite IDW artist, but this is truly fantastic and gives Mr. Frank a run for his money. This sort of respectful relationship between Oda and the Big G reminds me of the Japanese military officer in the Heisai Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah film, and and Jack makes a really good point here. We talked about this in Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, the respect... Oh, geez, I do not remember the character's name right now. Uh, between the character and Godzilla, and then Guy essentially commits seppuku by Godzilla um, when Godzilla goes on his rampage. I really like Matt Frank, too. Matt Frank has a very much a Western style, and Stokoe's style is very much a manga Eastern style. I think the two of them are both fantastic artists. I would love to see them work on, like, a jam book or something together just to see the two styles meet up. Matt Frank does some really amazing stuff, though. He does a lot of great covers for IDW, so if you haven't seen that, noodle around a little bit online and see if you can find some of his stuff. Um, Jack continues, What turned me on to the Marvel Shogun Warriors series was that my brother and I owned some of the toys. I ranked the Shogun Warrior Godzilla right up there with the Mego Thing and the Superpowers version of the Parasol Pillager with the Princely Probiscus. I know Godzilla did not fire off his fist in the movies, but it was really fun to shoot the Green Claw of Death into a bunch of Star Wars figures. The added bonus was that it was big enough that you did not lose it after your first week. Shogun Warriors 3 featured that fantastic fight between the Warriors and the ever-loving blue-eyed rock core or wait that's the wrong Marvel rock monster the fight was very fun and you are right the villains in this series were really creative <laughs> I, you know I, I envy you Jack because I being born in 1980 I just missed Shogun Warriors the closest that my brother and I had was we did have the uh, Voltron the which was the Godaiken DX Go Lion, which was marketed as Voltron, the 12-inch one with the combining lions. So I've always heard 
of the Shogun Warriors Godzilla. I've seen it. I've never actually had one. I've never owned one. I've never handled one. It's one of the great, um, great nerd dilemmas of my life that I, I have no experience with the uh, the Shogun Warriors Godzilla. It's such a classic. And the Tongue Flame, that is so cool. The Rodan's really nice, too. I've never even seen one of those in person. Uh, I've seen them online, and I've heard of I know people have them, but I've never actually gotten to handle a, a Shogun Warriors Rodan. And the Shogun Warriors toys in general are just, are just cool. You see them now, and it's like, man, can you imagine getting a 24-inch tall robot at your birthday party? I mean, everybody want to be you at that point. <laughs> and and I agree also, the, the fight in Shogun Warriors 3 was great. Shogun Warriors has been a lot of fun as a series. I don't see how you can go wrong with giant robots fighting giant monsters in a Marvel comic, drawn by Herb Trimpey. Jack continues, here's my question. IDW has done a lot of Godzilla series at this point. Which is your favorite so far? What do you think they could have done to improve the ones you were not so fond of? How would you compare IDW's handling to Marvel or Dark Horse's work on our favorite irradiated lizard? Uh, let me take those one at a time. My favorite of the Godzilla series, that is a tough one. It's going to be a toss-up between Gangsters and Goliaths and Half-Century War. I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I really like both of those. Half-Century War is more creative, but Gangsters and Goliaths has a very... I could see that being made into a movie. Half-Century War would be dang near impossible to film. I could see it as an anime, which makes sense, considering it's essentially a manga right now. But Gangsters and Goliaths, you could take that and make a script out of it. Admittedly, it would be a hugely expensive movie, but I think you could make a script out of that and actually film it. So it's one of those two. I'm not sure which is better. That's a tough question. What do I think they could have done to improve the ones I was not so fond of? I've liked all the miniseries. The only complaint I had about Godzilla Legends was the Kumonga issue really was only tangentially about Kumonga. It was mostly about Godzilla, which is, you know, all right. But if you're if it's a spotlight on Kumonga, give me a spotlight on Kumonga. I'd like to see them actually pull that off. The only real IDW series I haven't liked was the original Godzilla Kingdom of Monsters. And I don't know what could be done to improve that book. Um, you know, eliminate the blatant advocacy for President Obama, perhaps, or maybe stop showing us endless amounts of analogs for Lady Gaga and Bill O'Reilly and Rick Perry and all these other, you know, pop culture and political figures and actually give us a comic book about monsters. I know, it's it's crazy. It's It's out there, it's thinking outside the box, I'm shifting paradigms. But, you know, maybe it'll work. I don't know. It seemed to work okay in their second series. More on that in a little bit. Uh, Jack continues... Oh, wait a minute. I got one more question here. How would you compare IDW's handling to Marvel or Dark Horse's work? Against Marvel, the Marvel book was a little more consistent in tone. But that's because it was only one book. Whereas this is... You know, it's been three ongoing series and several miniseries so each one has had sort of a different tone. So the IDW one has been much more broad, I think, than what Marvel did. Marvel's book was fantastically fun. And right now, I think that's what we're going to cover once I finish up Shogun Warriors. We're going to do the Marvel Godzilla, so we can talk about this in more depth. It's The Marvel Godzilla was such a product of the time. It's just a fun, you know, monster smash book. It doesn't have a lot of the depth that some of the IDW stuff has. Now, some of the IDW stuff is pretty dang vapid. 
So it's kind of a tough call. Against Dark Horse, Dark Horse took an almost completely serious turn with Godzilla. Uh, even to the things like the Godzilla Color Special, which may be the single best Godzilla comic of all time. So I'd rank them probably about, I, I don't know, it's hard to say. I think Dark Horse probably did a little bit better just because they were they didn't have any real misses. You know, but then again, they did do Godzilla versus Barkley, so it's all relative. Uh, uh, it's hard to say. Put me on the spot. I'd say probably that Dark Horse was maybe a little bit better because they didn't have as big a misstep as Kingdom of Monsters. But IDW, once they got past the initial hurdle of Kingdom of Monsters, has acquitted themselves very nicely with the Godzilla license and has done a very good job with it. Jack continues, thanks for a great show. Keep stomping and stay safe out there. Jack Dower. P.S. Your crossover with the Fleet Commanders. Uh, he's talking about the Fire and Water podcast guest spot I did, uh, talking about you're getting your favorite comics canceled. Got me thinking about how much fun those are. IDW has done some really standout crossovers with Star Trek Doctor Who and Star Trek Legion of Superheroes. What would you think of them doing this one? Ultraman, Shogun Warriors, and the Pacific Rim Jaegers versus the denizens of Monster Island under the mega, the control of the mega villainy of Slipknot. Oh, Slipknot. <laughs> you have to listen to Fire and Water to understand this. As far as a crossover, I'd love to see them do a crossover of, of any type of giant monster property. The only real problem is that right now Ultraman has no presence whatsoever in the West, you know, outside of importing toys, and that doesn't even really count. The Shogun Warriors, I was just, I, was, I wrote this in an email to Scott Gardner a little while ago that they're in such a weird place because it's not like when Marvel or IDW or anyone licenses, say, G.I. Joe. You get the G.I. Joe license, you have access to all the G.I. Joe universe because that's one property. The Shogun Warriors, each robot had to be licensed separately. That's why we've got the three robots that we do in the Marvel Comics uh, series because those are the three that they could get licenses for. So a Shogun Warriors revival would be extremely tough. Now, as far as Pacific Rim, the only comic presence of Pacific Rim was in the legendary comics prequel comic, or prologue comic, I should say, because it came up before the film. And, Leg and Legendary is published by Marvel, so it would require... I mean, that could be done. I'd love to see a Godzilla vs. Pacific Rim type crossover. I don't know how you'd do it from a narrative standpoint, I mean, but just the visuals alone of seeing the Jaegers tangling with Toho's Pantheon of Monsters would be amazing. And then you throw Slipknot in there, and it's just, you know, just your head's just going to explode from the awesome. Uh, <laughs> appreciate the email, Jack. Uh, always great to hear from you. Jack Dower, if you didn't guess, is the biggest Penguin fan in the world. And Jack, you'll be happy to know that thanks to uh, our good friend Keith Samra, I have standing on my desk right here my complete superpowers Penguin with his umbrella. And his partner in crime is, of course, Secret Wars Kang. Probably the uh, two most underappreciated bad guys of 80s toy lines ever. And here they are. One team. Can you imagine Kang and the Penguin working together? That'd be an interesting thing. They'd go through time to rob banks. It'd be perfect. I'd love it. Up next, I have another email from the illustrious Jack Dower, and it is titled, I saw Pacific Rim twice, and it was great each time. Uh, Jack writes, Detective Jack and Eddie, you are on target concerning Pacific Rim. The movie was just so much fun. There are a couple of people I went with from work, and they are not even Daikaiju fans, and they enjoyed it. If the toy sales are strong, that alone will guarantee us that a second movie is made. 
The box office is really not bad for a niche film with no big-name stars. Also, it has not even opened in China or Japan yet at the time that uh, Jack wrote this. It will kill over there. Jack, you're absolutely right. I mean, Pacific Rim is just such an amazing film. It really was. Just top-to-bottom quality. Guillermo del Toro does not half-ass it. That's, you know, whether you like his films, don't like his films, that comes down to taste. But it's all there on the screen. He's a quality filmmaker. He's a dang good genre filmmaker. He understands how the genre film is supposed to work. And he brought all that love and that care and attention to detail to Pacific Rim on the screen. And I can't wait for it. I absolutely cannot wait to, to see it again. I really can't. Uh, the toy sales are odd because there's no real mainstream toys. It's just adult collector toys. And those have completely sold out. I found a single solitary knife head at Toys R Us here in upstate South Carolina. I bought them for my brother because my brother wanted the knife head. So, and I ended up pre-ordering there's a knife head versus Gypsy Danger 2-pack off of um, Big Bad Toy Store. You can also get it off of Amazon. Go to 2TrueFreaks.com, click on the Amazon.com link and buy it there. So the toy sales are, are doing fine, but your second point I think is more on, on hitting the nail on the head. The international box office for Pacific Rim was absolutely botho. I mean, just crazy. So I think we are definitely going to see Pacific Rim 2. It may take a while. Remember, there was a number of years between Hellboy and Hellboy 2, but it was very much worth the wait because Hellboy 2 was a really darn good movie. It just took Del Toro a while to get it made. You know, he's a guy that he gets he gets his attention going on different projects and he gets hooked up on different things. But once he comes back around, I think we're going to see something really nice with Pacific Rim 2. And, and furthermore, I just can't wait to see Pacific Rim um, on my home TV. I just can't wait to see it my own, uh, you know, sit on the couch with my favorite beverage and a bowl of uh, popcorn and just enjoy it again. Jack continues, here's my question. If Godzilla is a success next year, do you think we could be headed for another golden age of kaiju films? Hmm. Uh, that's a interesting, interesting theory you post here, Jack. I don't know that we'll ever get another golden age of kaiju films, insofar as the like we had in the show a period in the 1960s, where it was just the industry, the genre was relatively young. We had movies and TV shows and toys and and all of them just exploding. I think the technology is there. I think that if the Legendary Pictures Godzilla film is as good as Pacific Rim, and admittedly that is setting the bar very high, then we're, we might see a, a, a bit of a resurgence. You know, giant monster film has never really gone away. All you need to do is watch sci-fi on Thursday night or Saturday night to see that. And they always show these the crazy direct-to-video monster movies, a lot of times involving giant monsters. Now, admittedly, most of those are pure, you know, schlock but they're they're a lot of fun and they're enjoyable on a, on a you know a bad movie level so i don't know i would i, I think it's going to be a hard sell uh, unless godzilla does some really amazing box you know when it comes out i think then we could see it a sort of minor resurgence pacific rim didn't set the world on fire in the u.s i think a lot of people just thought of it as kind of a transformers knockoff they completely missed the point I'd love to see giant monsters come back, and who knows, you know, uh, the superhero movies can only run for so long that maybe they'll give giant monsters a try. The problem with giant monsters is that you get too much CG, you get you end up with Cloverfield, and nobody wants that. I mean, I certainly didn't want that, I can tell you that. You know, I, I don't need J.J. Uh, Abrams showing me how to do a 
Daikaiju movie quote-unquote correctly when they were done correctly four decades before. So, uh, Jack continues, thanks for the fantastic show. Keep stomping and stay safe out there. Jack Dower. P.S. Did you notice the Godzilla roar when the monster was destroying Japan the second attack? Yes, I did. The other one I also liked is when that one kaiju sprouted wings. He dang sure sounded like Rodan. Uh, I mean, that's the most famous flying monster of all time. It only makes sense. So, Jack, thank you very much again for writing in. Again, always love getting your emails. I always think of you now when I see my penguin up here, you and, and Keith. Um, let's see. we got some time. Let's see. I've got an email here from Mr. Jesse Garrett entitled, Earth Destruction Directive Overload Impossible. I love Jesse because when I, um, Earth Destruction Directive is now on Facebook. Um, it's, it's very limited just so that I basically can keep in touch with the other members of the Demonzo Core family. Uh, it was kind of buried in the Demonzo Core's contract when we joined 2TrueFreaks.com was that we had to have it. You know, I'm, and, and my attorneys have informed me that if I don't do it, the penalties are unusual and it's international. I don't want to get into it. So, and on Facebook, he had Rodan as his avatar for a while. So I like Jesse just for that. Jesse writes, greetings, Luke. I haven't emailed the show in quite a while due to real life. Real life gets in the way so much, doesn't it? And other such annoyances. But over the last two days, I managed to go on a binge and listen to all the show from the beginning. Here, here, Jesse, good work. Jesse continues, not only has the content of the show continued to impress, but the production value and presentation is on a steady increase, so keep up the good work. Jesse, thank you very much. You know, listening back to some of those old shows is tough because I'm doing it on the MP3 player, and so the bit rate is extremely low. And it works, but it sounds so much better when I'm using my mic setup. And I don't even have that good of a mic. I mean, I've just got a simple... Um, headset mic that came with my computer actually a number of years ago but it works really well just running it through audacity i mean take a listen and this is not to jesse this is just in general uh, scott gardner and chris honeywell and mike bailey recently did another episode about get off your ass and make your damn podcast it i can tell you straight up first off they got a ton of great advice on there secondly you don't need a lot a little bit of investment for a mic is pretty much all you need and then the rest of the software you can get for free if you got something to talk about do it but let's get back on with jesse's email jesse continues i have to say the pacific rim has been the most fun i've had at the theater all year it was a very well-made film from script to cinematography seeing it gives me hope that legendary's godzilla film won't be a rehash of what we got in 98 and Jesse, I agree with you completely. I, I managed to get to the theater quite a bit this year, and all for genre films, of course. And while I liked every one that I saw, Pacific Rim was an absolute blast. Just top to bottom, you know, fists pumping, you know, hearts pounding, great movie. Great crowd movie, great party movie, just a great movie on, in its own right. And especially for me, a guy's invested so much of it, so much of my life into the daikaiju genre, just to see it all poured on the screen with so much love. It, it, it almost brings a tear to my eye, just like Ric Flair. Jesse continues, I was wondering your opinion of next year's Godzilla film, as we've gotten more information since you last spoke of it. This is very true. We got a lot out of San Diego. It has been confirmed that Godzilla will fight another kaiju in the film, but no word if this will be another creature from Toho's back catalog or something original. Personally, I'd love to see someone along the lines of Mothra, Rodan, or possibly Anguirus appear, as they are classic opponents and relatively easy sells to the audience. Also, when do you predict Toho themselves to start production on another Goji film? 
Their original time frame was 10 years, but I think we can assume the American film changes that up a bit. Jesse, I'm going to take these one at a time. Honestly, what we've been seeing out of the legendary camp for Godzilla has really impressed me. Uh, the, the little bits of teaser images that we've seen, the design maquettes, I and mean, none of them are final for Goji, but they, they really look like they're bringing back the idea of a monster that crawled out of the primordial slime. Not, you know, I don't have a particular problem with Zilla, but Zilla doesn't look like a legendary monster. Not to not to make a pun. You know, I spoke earlier in the episode about the idea of Naranga as an Earth monster being this ancient, powerful force. That's what Godzilla is. Godzilla is the epitome of the Earth monster. So he should be this ancient, powerful force from another age. And a lot of the stuff that we've seen out of Legendary so far really seems to hit that. The cast they've put together just really looks amazing. You know, these are this is not a lightweight cast. And some of the little hints that we've gotten from set pictures and stuff shows that they're really treating Godzilla as like a living natural disaster and I can get behind that. They really want to make him something to be feared once again and that is again hitting all the correct notes so far. So I've got a lot of right now a lot of goodwill and a lot of high hopes and high expectations for the legendary Godzilla film. As far as fighting another monster from the Toho Pantheon I think this is probably unlikely. The reason why I say this is that Toho is very tight with the licenses that they will give. To give you an example, IDW, when they started doing the Godzilla comics, got access, I think, to a dozen monsters. Despite, you know, all the different monsters that Toho has available, it was only this handful that they were allowed to use. It wasn't until they had been publishing for uh, over two years that they renegotiated the license and they were allowed the full pantheon in the first couple of issues of the new Godzilla ongoing which is um, Rulers of Earth we see Zilla actually and in number three we see Manda and we see Gizora so we're starting to get some much more obscure monsters and that's only after two years of this I think we're gonna see Godzilla fight an original opponent Uh, for one thing it's one less thing that you have to very expensively license from Toho and secondly, it gives um, Godzilla carte blanche to absolutely murderize this monster in the third act if he wants to, which I'm all in favor of. So, uh, As far as the ones you suggested, if we were going to bring in another monster, it would I, it would be one of these. It would probably be Mothra, Rodan, or Anguirus, with the only other one possibly being King Ghidorah. Those are the most... Mothra, Rodan, and King Ghidorah, besides Godzilla, are the most recognizable daikaiju in the West, bar none. Um, I mean, I, I've i talked to people who have not seen a Godzilla film since they were kids. I haven't seen a Godzilla film in 25 years. I say I do a podcast about Japanese giant monsters. They go, oh, like Rodan. You know, Rodan is, is I don't know why, he has such a strong following. Well, I mean, I do because he's awesome. But it's just odd that you see Rodan being picked up. Mothra, everybody knows Mothra. I mean, they did a Far Side comic about Mothra, one of my absolute favorites, where they're building a giant campfire. And the caption is, the army's last-ditch effort to destroy Mothra. So, um, and when do I think Toho will start production on another Godzilla film? I think it, much like in 98, it depends on the success of the American film. If the American film is is a hit, I think Toho is going to be content to let this ride probably another... Maybe think about the production schedules. Let's see, if they do uh, 2014 for the first one, that means the sequel would be, what, 2016? Maybe 2017? So it might be a while. 
you know, maybe as as far as uh, you know, even into the the 2020s before Toho starts it up, if it's a success. If it is not a success, you can expect them to start it up right away. Now, that's not to say that Godzilla is not going to appear. I strongly suspect that if the American Godzilla film is a hit, Toho will bring out some sort of smaller project with Godzilla in it, whether it's um, a direct-to-video type of thing, maybe a short film or a special. In Japan, a lot of times you'll see the, you see this with the Common Rider and Super Sentai properties. They will do a shorter theatrical release and then pair like double feature two of them together they'll be like 45 minutes and put two of them together on one ticket actually Ultraman's getting one of those we're getting an Ultraman Ginga theatrical special uh, a couple of weeks from when I'm recording this actually so I think it's probably going to be at least another at least another couple of years maybe more depending on success of the American one uh, Jesse can close this up. Thanks again for a great show. Signed, Jesse Garrett. Jesse, thank you very much for writing in. Really great to hear from you. I'm glad that you're enjoying the show and that you're all caught up. I hope that you uh, enjoy this one as well when you listen to it. Let's see. I have one more email, and we're not quite at half an hour, so I will get this one in and get us all cut up. Cut up. Caught up. This uh, email is from Stephen Frey and is entitled Ultra Fan. Dear Mr. Lou, because I cannot spell or pronounce your last name. Well, Stephen, I hate to say this, but uh, my name's Luke, not Lou. That's okay. Um, you can just call me Luke. That's fine. And uh, Mr. Luke is, is uh, what I get called a lot because he's saying, oh, Luke Giaconetti. Okay, Mr. Luke. Uh, it's just like the bit from Married with Children that uh, every adult male in this country knows someone or is he himself always referred to by his first and last name. Uh, I had a... Uh, friend of mine that I worked with for a number of years who was always called Joe Fox. No one ever called him Joe. They never called him Mr. Fox. It was just Joe Fox. So you can call me Mr. Luke. You can call me Luke. Uh, whatever you want. Uh, Stephen continues, I've recently become a listener to your podcast. Well, welcome aboard, Stephen. And I just wanted to say thank you for all the love you're showing to the Ultraman franchise. Of the three Japanese hero-battling monsters franchises, Ultraman, Kamen Rider, and the Super Sentai, I feel that Ultraman is the less appreciated of the three, especially when it comes to podcasts. So thank you. I'm personally a huge fan of the Ultra series. Ultraman Tiga was the first Ultraman series I saw, and therefore the one that I cherish the most. Steven, you're, you are very welcome for doing that. I love Ultraman. I've loved Ultraman since I was a little kid. Even before I knew what Kamen Rider or the Super Sentai was, I knew about Ultraman and was a fan. I mean, to me, Ultraman and Godzilla have always been kind of uh, right there as um, the top dogs in Japanese sci-fi. You are completely correct also in saying that Ultraman is underappreciated in the modern context. And I think a lot of this has to do with how the demographics of tokusatsu fans has shifted in the U.S. One of the I, I frequent a uh, tokusatsu board called tokunation.com, which I recommend. It's a very good tokusatsu discussion board. But I, I sometimes feel like I'm the oldest guy there by a good 10 years. And I'm not that old, you know. So I think the younger fans gravitate more towards the Super Sentai and to Kamen Rider, especially Kamen Rider, because one, the toys... Uh, there's a lot more toys of those coming out nowadays, and it's very hip for these guys to collect them. And it's much easier to collect these Japanese toys now with the import toy sites like HLJ and uh, Ami Ami and Hobby Search and, and um, eToys Japan. There's a few others. And these shows are, are still modern, and they, 
you know, there, there's, I mean, now, yes, we have Ultraman Ginga coming out, but Ultraman hadn't had a show on the air since about 2000, I want to say 2006, with Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy. And the fan sub outfits seem to hesitate from doing the Ultraman shows as well. So you've got a lot of the older stuff done, but a lot of the, and some of the modern stuff, but they, they just don't seem to give it the priority that they do to give the newest Kamen Rider and Super Sentai. The Kamen Rider and Super Sentai shows also seem to feature a lot of young adult casts, whereas the Ultraman shows have always skewed a little bit older as far as the casting, you know, Hoshino notwithstanding. I think it all kind of adds up. What's interesting is that on Tokenation, we've had, we have a program called Let's Watch Wednesday, where we pick a show and we watch three episodes from it every week and we discuss it. Well, Ultraman Nexus is the show that we managed to get on, basically through a coordinated effort through a few of the Ultra fans on the site, including myself. And it's absolutely amazing. Since we've started watching it, all these people are coming up saying, oh, this is really cool. And suddenly all of our Ultraman threads have all this more traffic. So, you know, if, if you're a Tokusatsu fan, and if you're watching the Super Sentai Kamen Rider, that's, hey, that's cool. I like both of those properties, but give Ultraman a shot. I think you'll probably dig it. What's funny is when you hear people complain that, oh, it's too slow. It's like, no, it's Kamen Rider's just spastic and over, and Super Sentai's even worse. It's like, they're not choreographed, they're just flailing. Okay. <laughs> and as far as Ultraman Tiga, great show. Great show. I wish I could get all the DVDs. I honestly do. Uh, there's a real good... Who did the fan sub? I, there's a real good fan sub set of them out there, so yeah, I can watch it, but I'd love to just get those DVDs. That'd be great. Tiga's a good show. Tiga's a... a a cool ultra too and you gotta love the the changing forms uh steven continues of course i love the godzilla stuff the half century war series i feel perfectly encapsulated the godzilla series as a whole and prove that godzilla is neither good nor evil but a force of nature that cannot be stopped i do have a question have you ever read the book godzilla 2000 by mark saracini it's much different from the movie of the same name and has a similar style to Pacific Rim, which I saw and loved. And it has all the classic Godzilla monsters like Mothra, Rodan, Kamakuras, and of course, King Ghidra. It's definitely worth picking up. Um, Jesse, I, I've, I have heard of the Godzilla 2000 book you're talking about. I've never actually seen it to buy it. I guess I'll need to see if I can find that one online. I, I, I'd heard it was written before the movie came out. It's not related to the movie at all, if I'm remembering correctly. I'll have to see if I can track down a copy of that. I think there was I think there was one other one in that series too, but maybe maybe I'm mixing myself up. I'll have to look into that. Thank you for bring, for reminding me and bringing that to my attention. I will definitely look into that and uh, and see what I can find. Um, let's see. Ah, here he goes. Until I listen to you again, please keep on stomping your newest fan, Stephen F. Stephen, thank you so much for writing in. I am so glad that you're enjoying the show. I hope you enjoy this one as well. If you have other friends or associates online that, that like Daikaiju, please turn them on to the show. You know, this this show, as I've said it before and I'll say it again, it's a labor of love for me because, you know, much like, you know, other podcasters, especially on here on the Two True Freaks Network, but all over, have their things that they are passionate about and they love and that they, you know, put the time and effort in. That's how I feel about Daikaiju. The way that somebody like Michael Bailey thinks about Superman, or Scott Gardner thinks about Superman, or that uh, Sean Engel thinks about, you know, Green Lantern, or, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Chris Honeywell thinks about garage sales. The way that they put that time and effort in is the way that I feel about Daikaiju, and I'm glad that people out there are enjoying this because this is just me talking about something I love, you know. Um, I'm, I'm not... It's nothing more than that. 
So thank you everybody for writing in. I really love getting all these emails. And uh, like I said, if you guys want to comment on this show or any episode of uh, Earth Destruction Directive, please drop me a line at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com and I will be glad to respond to you and read it on the air. I'm sorry I didn't get to respond to some of these. It's It's been kind of hectic. The show's a little bit late, as you can see. But um, I want to just get, get it responded. So please send in feedback. I love getting it and I love hearing from you guys. Next time on Earth Destruction Directive, we are going to be getting ourselves caught up, so to speak, on IDW Comics. Now, I have in my hot hands the final three issues of the IDW Godzilla series. This is the one that we have covered almost in toto here on Earth Destruction Directive. So we're going to be finishing that up with the final three issues, which is issues 11, 12, and 13. Now, I also have the first two issues, and the third issue is on its way in the mail, of the follow-up series, which is Rulers of Earth. And we're going to be covering that in the future. I'm trying to think of a good way, a good way to chunk this out. I might just do three episodes, three issues per episode, and just do it that way. The other thing I thought about doing was maybe doing one issue an episode, just trying to do them a little more currently. But I'm already doing that with Shogun Warriors, so I'm not sure which would be the better way. If you have an opinion about how I should cover Rulers of Earth, please send it in and let me know. In any event, next time we're going to be doing, like I said, issues 11, 12, and 13 of IDW's Godzilla series. Get that series taken care of, and let me tell you, it's uh, it's it's been worth the wait. Uh, actually, I got Rulers of Earth number one came out before Godzilla 13 did, very oddly, but it was definitely worth the delay very cool book that's all i'm going to say right now we're also of course going to be talking about the next issue of marvel's shogun warriors which will be number five and of course anything else that comes up in the world of daikaiju so until then thank you for listening and keep them stomping Directed, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, and presented by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum, at www.forum4geek.com 
And you can find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libson.com to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.